Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. At Lemonada Media, we are on a mission to make life suck less. That's why we are so excited to announce the launch of our newest show, Good Things, a podcast we specifically created to highlight people and organizations who make our world a better place. Hosted by a rotating cast of our favorite Lemonada hosts and special guests, Good Things highlights incredible organizations that are solving our country's most complex issues. From working to improve the American foster care system to fighting to increase diversity and inclusion initiatives, this show shines a light on the fixers out there who are working to make good things happen. Good Things is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Why do I love telling stories? Great question. I would love to tell you. I've always been a storyteller by nature. It's because I'm not very comfortable with the back and forth of conversation, especially if it's one-on-one. I just never know when the right time is to insert my thoughts, like what's considered being an active participant in the ping and pong of conversation, and what's just considered interrupting. How do you keep a healthy amount of eye contact? How much is too much? How much is not enough? Too much, it's intimidating. Too little, you look like you're not paying attention. And if you have a beverage in your hand, how are you supposed to sip that? Usually I just wanna chug it right when I get it so that it's like one less thing I have to figure out how to like naturally incorporate into the conversation. But then, you know, someone asks if you want to refill, and usually that means they take your cup. And honestly, holding this cup is giving me something to do with my hands. So I'd rather just hold the empty cup than get a refill. But with stories, stories are a monologue. I talk and you listen. I don't have to feel the pressure of maintaining eye contact while I'm telling a story, because it's pretty common for people to look off into the distance while they try and remember things in a story. I can teleport and time travel into the memory I'm sharing, and then all of a sudden, I'm not sitting at a table in a cafe with a stranger that I'm trialing out as a friend. I'm in seventh grade. I'm flying through the air, tripping over my shoes, landing with my skirt over my head on the way to the cafeteria on pizza day. The person I'm sharing the story with is an audience member to the memory I'm recalling. They feel like they're getting to know me, and by watching their reaction to my story, and oftentimes like following up with a story of their own, I feel like I get to know them. And it's a lot easier than pinging and ponging small talk at each other. But how does that translate to telling stories on the internet? That's another great question. You're asking really good questions today. I began sharing true stories about my life on the internet when my son was like six months old-ish. At the time, there was this gigantic valley that lived between the person I was before having my son August and the person I am after August. I was experiencing postpartum depression, and literally up until the night we took August home from the hospital, I had no clue what postpartum depression even was. I truly thought that postpartum was like a timestamp, the time in which this kind of depression happens, not the type. I had it all wrong. Unfortunately, I realized this a little too late. I was in it, and I was um, fighting my way out one morning, afternoon, and night at a time. 
One of those mornings, I woke up around 3.30 a.m. to feed my son, and I just could not fall back asleep. The last thing I wanted to do was get back in bed and just, like, be awake. That's even more frustrating than just not being able to sleep in the first place. So I went straight to my kitchen, and I made myself a coffee. And then out of nowhere, I just started trying to mentally connect the person I was in college with this person now who's grabbing a cup out of my cupboard, who's grabbing ice trays out of the freezer, who's grabbing almond milk out of the fridge. These hands I'm looking at are the same hands. They took notes in school. They played viola in orchestra. They zipped up a wedding dress. They held my husband's hand, typed on my keyboard for work. Why don't these hands feel like my hands? As I was looking down, I noticed my sweatshirt sleeves rolled up twice, the classic Elise double roll. I remembered why I started rolling my sleeves this way in the first place and how cool it made me feel the first time I did it. It was like my current self and my past self shook hands and met in that very moment. I got my phone out and I recorded my first ever story about my life online. So I will be wearing sweatshirts rolled up twice at the sleeve like this for the rest of my life and I'm gonna tell you why. I was 18, I lived in Australia, and I saw this sweatshirt in the back hung up that said, you're weird, I like it. Put it on and the sleeves were rolled up twice like this and I was like, this is the pinnacle of fashion. I have been doing it wrong my entire life. I loved it so much that I took the tags off of it, I paid for it, I walked out of the store, and I haven't changed anything about my fashion sense since I was 18 years old. Thank you very much. It was silly and it was short, but it meant so much to me that my brain was recognizing me in that memory. Telling stories went from being an escape from conversation to a bridge over that gigantic valley of who I was and who I now am. And as luck would have it, those stories were also a bridge straight to you, listening to this story right now. Thank you. Okay, actually, can you just pretend that you're listening to a fully complete theme song here? I got really in my head, and I tried to make it perfect, and I couldn't. So this is going to be the theme song right here. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Funny Because It's True. I'm Elise Myers. Today, I'm joined by Mike Brabiglia. He is an incredible comedian, director, actor, and author. So everything, basically. Mike has written and performed several award-winning solo plays, including Sleepwalk With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, and Thank God for Jokes. Mike's latest show is called The Old Man in the Pool, which he's performing on Broadway until January 15th, 2023. If you can, please check it out. So two things that are funny because they're true. Number one, I have always connected to Mike Birbiglia's style of comedy. I love that he makes most of his jokes about like his real life, but he has this really funny way of giving like a narrative arc in his stories. And I just think that that's great. Number two, we start using the term flesh suits, which is super gross, but also pretty fitting. Um, we're just some stressed out brains in some flesh suits. Okay, let's get into it. Can I ask you what the colored cards are behind you? Because I've been watching you set up and I'm so curious. Oh, yeah. So, like, these are all jokes. Oh. Um, so, like, this says, like, pulmonary test. And this says, like, iPhone funeral. And this says, sign that says peeing in pool. And this one says an arrow, literally. And they're just, like, joke um, titles. And usually what I do, and this is for my podcast working it out, is, like, I'll put 
but it predated the podcast, is that I put joke titles up on the wall and then I configure set lists from the joke titles. Oh my gosh. That's so smart. Thanks. Are you visual with like learning? I'm very visual. Yeah. Same. I have never thought to do that. It's genius. What is, um, and you might not be able to tell me, but one of them says Rosemary Ciabatta. Yeah. Yeah. I think that joke is from one day I was behind this little kid and his dad at a coffee shop and this little kid goes, uh, dad, I don't want rosemary ciabatta i want wegula ciabatta and i wanted to say to this kid you know life is going to serve you all kinds of ciabatta but if if you want (laughs) if you really want to stick up for yourself you should demand the regular ciabatta and also you should probably learn how to say your r's as well (laughs) (laughs) well that's one of the jokes from my show right now which is all toddlers have a boston accent and they're like, I'm tired. And Boston toddlers are like, I'm wicked tired. I'm wicked tired. Is that um, idea of putting the cards and stuff, is that something you learned from someone else? Or is that something you kind of did by yourself? I think it was in- intuitive because I, I started doing stand-up when I was like, I don't know, like 19 years old. Wow. And I was, and I, I think that I had a really hard time remembering my set list. That's like one of my biggest fears is just not remembering. Totally. Because it's like, I I I talked about this on Colbert recently, but like, you know, actor's nightmare is the idea of like you you forget everything, you forget yeah. all your lines, and you're just there. And I had it. I'm in a Tom Hanks movie called The Man Named Otto that comes out out around Christmas, and it was so such an amazing experience. But I had actor's nightmare with Tom Hanks, where they they shot this whole. I drove a car around a bend and. I drive up and there's a crane shot with the cameras coming in on the crane and then Tom Hanks walks up to the window and I open the window and he says a thing and I say a thing and I drove up and I opened the window and he said the thing and I didn't know anything. And then I just got, uh, and then I'm just, noth- I said nothing. It's said Tom Hanks, my childhood <laughs> idol. And it's like, I had an Apollo 13 poster in my wall growing up. And, and I'm like, oh no. And then he's so nice and generous as a, scene partner that he starts trying to feed me my line that he knew like he was like how do you feel about me do you think i should leave the neighborhood you know what i mean like (laughs) i think i would quit on the spot right there it's kind of a i i play sort of his nemesis in the film in the sense that like i'm this character who like who works in on the corporate side of like real estate and housing developments and so to and, and so it would be advantageous for my character for him to move and so I'm kind of nudging his character to move and I I, I come into the film like I, I think maybe three times. Did you start? Because you said you started um, stand up when you were 19. I started in high school. I was like I, I started doing performing sketches and oh, cool. I was in I was in plays. Um, and then when I was in college, I joined, I, I didn't join, I auditioned for the improv troupe at Georgetown. And then I got in and it was like, I, I feel like there's so few uh, epiphanies in life. Like there's so few moments where you're like, this is the moment where yeah. everything changed. But actually uh, getting cast in the improv troupe actually was that. What did that feel like? Like did, so you auditioned and then what was? I feel like it was a like a paradigm shift in my life. Like it happened over the course of maybe the first month uh, of being an improv troupe where I, wow. I, I I was like, you know, my whole life I thought I was funny. And um, sometimes other people did and sometimes other people didn't. 
Okay. And uh, and I think that's because we all have different senses of humor. <laughs> and I always thought my sense of humor was much funnier than other people's. But you're like, <laughs> but you they, just don't get it. Yeah, yeah, they don't get it. They don't get it. And so uh, when I was casting the improv troupe, I was like, oh my gosh, all of these people are so funny. I can't believe how lucky I am to have found these people. Wow. Was it different from your other experiences in high school doing like scripted plays? Were you surprised? Like you were like, I like this so much more? Completely different. I mean, improv is so expressive because when you improvise, like you're the director and the actor and the writer and the this. And it was like, it kind of like, it was expansive. Yeah. Was it intimidating at all? Or did you feel pretty comfortable right away? I felt pretty comfortable. I mean, wow. I thought, the, I think the, the rest of my life was intimidating. Really? <laughs> yeah. I guess that's like a good, I guess that's a good marker of like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Yeah. If you're like, this is the one thing I feel like this is really natural. I did improv and it was so terrifying. So wow. I have so much respect for people that do it and love it and feel comfortable with it. No, it's funny because it's different. You know, when I watch your stuff, I'm always like, oh, that takes a, a like a different type of confidence because you don't have an audience typically when I, the stuff I watch. And so I'm like, oh, you had to have the confidence to say, no, this is a good story and it's a funny story and it's and it's going to interest people all the way through. And then it works. And for me, I need an audience to tell me if it's working. Interesting. It doesn't make you nervous performing in front of people? No. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a reverse. <laughs> but how are you confident enough to know that your story is going to work? Me? Yeah. I think it's funny. That's really yeah. all I care about. I think yeah. that like, I think that there's a difference between storytelling and comedy and then like on, on a stage and then making content about it because you have to be reading a moment that is only happening one time. My moment happens whenever it resonates with somebody and an algorithm puts it on their For You page and that's what they're watching. Right now, if I make a joke or a video that like doesn't land and someone doesn't think it's funny, I don't have to like stare into the whites of their eyeballs at their face when they don't think it's funny. I just, I don't, I just carry on with my day. I could not actually imagine that. Oh my God, that makes me just want to spiral. Right. I love that you feel confident in it. Do you have anybody that you had as a hero or somebody that you kind of pulled from when you started doing it? When I was in high school, I saw Stephen Wright live, who who is a legendary comedian. He still is. Um, my brother Joe took me to see him, and I had never seen live stand up comedy, and it was <sighs> it was kind of mind boggling because it was like you know it's like ninety minutes of just obliterating punchlines, just these really perfectly worded kind of uh, comedic haiku that he does. I was stunned. I mean, my face hurt from laughing, which is a cliche. But it actually was true. I, I mean, I mean, fa my face hurt from laughing. And so that was a huge thing because I was like, you know, I think a lot of comedy is, this, is, is a little bit of a sleight of hand where mm. you're watching someone tell a story or a series of jokes and you're lured into a false sense of that's the thing that I think. But actually, you couldn't maybe articulate it as well as the person on stage is. Yeah. You think you could, you know. And so you're like, oh, that's that's just like me. And so that I had that with Stephen Wright. That's so interesting. Do you yeah. do you find that like it's on purpose that that's 
that jokes are like written that way? Like, do you, do you approach writing a joke where you're like, I want someone to feel like I'm reading their mind or is it just like, I hope someone connects with this? Well, like the show that I'm doing right now is called the old man in the pool. It's all about life and death and mortality. And a lot of it is kind of my own obsessions with death. And, um, I had bladder cancer when I was 20. I had type two diabetes a few years ago. I reversed, I've dealt, I've sleepwalking disorder. I've talked about a lot. I made a movie about, but like, uh, I think about uh, dying. I think about people close to me dying, people who I've lost in the past. And when I started to put it on stage, it was it was really a sense of like, okay, here's what's interesting to me or funny to me. Here's what I'm obsessed with. And then typically what an audience gives you is they tell you which of those things they find interesting mm. or funny. And then there's a Venn diagram that forms between those two things. And the, and the sweet spot of that Venn diagram is usually somewhere approximately where the show ends up landing. So right. ho- hopefully when people see the old man in the pool, they come and they go, oh, that's me. That's just like me. When I tell a story online, I genuinely have to imagine that that Venn diagram that Mike is talking about is just a circle, one singular circle. (laughs) Like what I find funny perfectly overlaps with what you find funny. That's just the blind confidence you have to have when posting content online instead of like a live audience. I'm like a proud mom, like sending her kid off to school, like no matter what anyone says about you, just know you're great. I think you're great. (laughs) That's how it feels. You know... And actually, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> but that's good. It's good that people think that. You want that. Yeah. Do you do, you do a lot of testing for your stuff? So much. So, so much. much. Like, how do, you, how do you do that? Just in front of audiences. Like, I'll, like I'll okay. go on tour. And I, like, I just finished essentially like a year of touring. I went to probably 40 cities. And, and then I, I sat the show for a month in Berkeley at the Repertory Theater. I sat at Steppenwolf in Chicago for a month in May. And then I sat it at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles for a month in August. And then in, intermittently, I went to Cincinnati and I went to, you know, uh, Detroit and all these places for like one night shows. And it's helpful for me to know what's connecting and where, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, even like I went to like London... Iceland and Paris. And that's really instructive because I'm like, oh, Paris, you know, either they speak English really well or not that well or not at all. And mm. uh, and so let's see how that goes. Yeah. What's the difference, though, between like a test and a performance? Where's that line? Is there's it all no, just For a me, test? there's no line. <laughs> okay. We, you know, it's the same as my podcast title, but it's like when it's not done, I call the shows working it out. Oh, wow. When it's done, I give it a title, you know, so the la- so the shows, the last bunch of shows were Sleepwalk With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, Thank God For Jokes, the new one, and this one's called The Old Man in the Pool. And so when I name them, they're like, people know, like, that's that's the show name. It's like a series that's like an ongoing series working it out. Turns out it is. I did not intend it that way. I think that's really smart, honestly. And it also sets expectation of the audience coming into it knowing, like, this might not all connect with me, or it might be amazing. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that that's really smart, too, for people to know. Do, do you think people know that you're doing that or not really? No, I think they're pretty hip to it. Like, it's so funny. Like, early on in, in, in my comedy career, like, I was working the door at the Washington, D.C. Improv. Like, that's how I got my start in college. Oh, wow. And for me, I'm like, oh, that means I get to see the comedians for free. So I watched, like, 
Mitch Hedberg and Margaret Cho and Jim Gaffigan and all these people. Wow. And that, that, but it, for free, you know, I couldn't afford to see any comedy live. <clears throat> so that was like massive for me. He, and when, when, when was this? What year was this? I was in college. I was, in, I, was, I was like a sophomore in college. Oh my gosh. So you watch these people like start. Oh man, if I could go back and watch anyone at a comedy club before they got like famous famous, I would watch Mitch Hedberg, like final answer. Yeah, and I was I would ask them a lot of annoying questions. Like I would just ask them tons of advice questions and stuff. Were they all pretty generous with their advice or not really? Pretty much everyone was generous. And and what you find is like when you ask a lot of people for advice, generally you get something different from everyone like like i had a joke uh early on where i was opening for george lopez he had just seen my set and he, i had had a joke at the expense of oprah winfrey in my set who was massive at the time yeah I mean, that show was and and my girlfriend at the time would watch it every day and so i was why well, I, I made a joke about it. and he said he goes you know you open with a joke about oprah and uh the audience loves oprah and they do not know who you are yeah you're like shitting on their like best friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, wow, that is a powerful. He's like, you got to put yourself down before you put down someone else because then they know mm. that you're not a jerk. That's really good advice. Yeah, isn't that great? What advice would you give to someone who's the door person now? Um, what I would say is that as much as possible, if you want to be a comedian, Get on stage however much anyone will let you in any context. So if someone wants to let you host their walkathon for cancer, host their walkathon for cancer. If someone wants you to perform in a cafeteria, do it. Because all the failure um, is the is the building blocks for making something that is is worth watching. If you could see my face right now, you would know how much I dislike this piece of advice and wish it was literally any other piece of advice. We have to take a quick break, but when we get back, Mike talks about how he gets his audiences to laugh at even the most heavy stories. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
I wanted to go back just a little bit because you were talking about that show that has like a lot of like heavy topics and with stories that I tell, like um, some of them are a little bit heavier as well, but I try and like lift it. And I just was really curious to know how you do that. Like, how do you have that skill of doing both at the same time and not depressing people while talking about heavy things? It's certainly a delicate balance and something I work out on stage over time and it's trial and error and and there's a lot of error there's a lot more error than 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 a success um i think you know when you're performing stuff that's dramatic and comedic one of the things i try to remember is that people want you to be honest with them hmm. like i feel like with your stories like i feel like one of the one of the sort of deepest strengths of your stories is that there's a authenticity to the story. I think people, when you're telling a story, it doesn't really matter if it's funny or dramatic or whatever, because they, they lock into, to the, the authenticity of you. Mm. And so I think like the key thing I think would be, you know, what's in the story, like what's true to you? Yeah. Like over the years, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with Ira Glass on This American Life. All right, I know we're about to hear this together, so this might seem totally unnecessary, but I am going to pull a best friend card and let you know the story that Mike is about to tell right now is my favorite part of the entire interview, and I have gone back to this interview to listen to just this story like five times. He's taught me a lot about stories, and a lot of times what he'll do is he'll take a story that I'll tell him, and he'll go like, well, what was underneath that? Hmm. You know, like, why did you want to do that? Why did you get obsessed with that? You know, like, for example, like many years ago, I had a story on his show uh, where I talked about getting hit by a drunk driver and being made to pay for the driver's car. And and it was awful. And I was pitching him the story. And, and he goes, yeah, I mean, that's a good story. But like, it's not good enough for, you know, the stage, I don't think, because it's like... A lot of people have been hit by a car. A lot of people have been wronged by this or that, you know. Hmm. And so we were talking, but he goes, what, what, was that? what else was going on in your life at that moment in time? And I was like, oh, I was like, Jenny and I, my wife now, we're talking about getting married or not getting married and deciding what are, what are we going to do with our lives? You know, we were about 30 and, and we were in kind of, I didn't, it's like, I didn't believe in the idea of marriage and I was really kind of like bullheaded about it and, and stubborn. And he drew this connection thematically between how I couldn't let go of this thing of getting wronged by this drunk driver, and I couldn't get over the fact that marriage feels so antiquated as an institution, and it's patriarchal, and it's it's madness, and it doesn't make any sense, and it's based on exchanging land and all these things. And so we sort of talked through the idea of like, well, what if those two things came together in this in the story and so that's how that merged and so the end of that story and the end of my girlfriend's boyfriend the show if people want to see it on netflix is like spoiler uh it was it came out 10 years ago but um it's basically like i paid for this drunk driver's car and i let go of it and jenny and i got married and i still don't believe in the idea of marriage but i believe in her and I've given up on the idea of being right. Wow. So thematically, the, the show and that story for This American Life became about the theme of like being right, which is like a meaningful thing to me. And to go back to the authenticity thing, like, like 
I think the audience can sense when I'm like ranting on this stuff, like that's who I am and that's a flaw or however you describe it. And so, and so if it's, if it, if the audience believes it's true to me, I think that they're along, potentially along for the ride. And so then it makes it universal. That's what I kind of got from that, which is like very, very interesting because it, that, I feel like that would make it easier when you're talking about heavy topics because you could relate it to something that's very light as well at the same time, you know? Absolutely. And I think the audience is willing to go between light and dark. Yeah. I mean, certainly in The Old Man in the Pool, it's really light and really dark. I mean, I I, I mean, I have like jokes that are as goofy as like all toddlers have a Boston accent. And then I, I tell a story about having bladder cancer when I was 20. You know, it's like so and it's a pin drop silence. Like it's and, and I think the audience knows that like. I mean, look, like we're all in this completely absurd life existence. We all live in these absurd bodies. It doesn't make sense half the time. And I like to call it a flesh suit when I'm <laughs> feeling overwhelmed. <laughs> if I really feel overwhelmed by life, I'm like, look at me stressing in this flesh suit. It just really puts everything into perspective. <laughs> it's madness. It's madness. It's just all so silly. And I think sometimes comedians serve the purpose of just being like, here's how I think it's silly. Hmm. And the audience is like, oh my gosh, that's how I think it's silly too. Is that kind of what you want your audience to feel? Like, is there anything that you're like, I want my audience to walk away with this thing when they leave my show? What is that? Oh, man. I got served this TikTok video of an old Jerry Seinfeld interview who I, who I think is, in addition to being a great comedian, just has a ton of wisdom on comedy. And he says this thing, he goes, I'm paraphrasing, but, but it's like after performing for a big audience, like, and there's been a lot of laughs, I'm not thinking how did that go for me? I'm thinking, how did it go for them? Hmm. He goes, because it's not about me. It's about them and, and about me giving something to them. And, and he goes, the people I've seen kind of fall apart in show business are people who think it's about them. That's really interesting. I thought it was really profound. And like, what I'm trying to do is be vulnerable to the audience and admit things about myself that I'm I'm nervous about or I'm sad about or I'm angry about and do that in a way that makes them laugh. Uh, and and if I can do that, like I, I, I feel like if you can go to the darkest topic, you go to the saddest thing, and you can find a laugh within that, it gives uh, the audience sort of a treasure map of their own mm. to figure out how to do that for their own stuff. That's an interesting visual. I like that. <laughs> I was a web developer before I got into all this and when I was talking to somebody kind of telling me how to start this like business of freelancing and stuff, they said, the best freelancers are generous freelancers. And I always found that to be true. And then when I started comedy, I was like, I want to bring that into comedy. I want to believe that the best comedians are like generous comedians. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting like visual, the treasure map thing of like, you're giving these people tools to understand their life, understand their feelings, and also maybe just laugh for a second so that they can escape the flesh suit stress. Totally. If this episode isn't called the flesh suit <laughs> stress, then I don't know what it's going to be called. We're going to take one more break. Stick around to hear why Mike doesn't like performing in front of people he knows. Same. Do you ever get hit with a cringy memory of your 13-year-old self out of nowhere? 
and suddenly you're panic sweating and laughing at the same time. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. We all get that. It's because being an adolescent is one of the most visceral shared experiences we have as people. And we want to talk about it. Join me, Penn Badgley, and my two friends, Nava and Sophie, on Podcrushed as we interview celebrity guests about the joys and horrors of being a teenager and how those moments made them who they are today. New episodes of Podcrushed are out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out now from Lemonada Media. So in a lot of your performances, you're in like a theater. You're not just in a comedy club. How did you make that choice? Well, a lot of it is like, so in the early 2000s, I was lucky enough to open for uh, Mitch Hedberg and Louis Black and David Tell on what, what was the first Comedy Central live tour. Oh my gosh. I know. And it was, I was so lucky. You know, it was a funny, it's kind of a funny story. I, I was going to Washington, D.C. and that show was happening. And I was such a big fan of those three comedians. And I knew the person who was booking the show because he was a club booker in San Francisco. This guy, Jeff. And I called Jeff and I go, could I get tickets for that show? And he goes, I'll do you one better. You could open up. And I go, okay. And so I flew myself in. I put myself up and all this stuff and like essentially made no money to do it. Uh, and then and then I said, can I do more of them? And so then I did like Philadelphia, New York, and a bunch of other ones. But what I found in these theaters, and this is what sort of – one of the things that really changed the way I look at everything is that in a theater versus a comedy club, I just find that the level of listening is higher hmm. because there's nothing else going on. There's not like a server coming over bringing chicken wings. There's not, you know what I mean? There's not people repeatedly getting up, go to the bathroom, people shout less. And so I was like, oh, my jokes are actually doing better in a theater than they were in a club because people are listening. Okay, hold on. So, wait. Literally up until this point of the interview, I genuinely thought every time I said, like, theater on any of the prep I'd been given or, like, any time he said that he likes performing in theaters, I thought he was talking about, like, musical theater. Okay. The space of a theater. Not, not the genre of musical theater. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm tracking. I'm on it. I was just so confused because I've seen like everything that Mike Birbiglia has like ever put out and I have never once seen him like singing and dancing in a show. And I'm just like, okay, he's branching out. He's trying something new. And I'm so glad I didn't ask him about musical theater. I'm so glad it did not come to that because if I didn't get that answer, I would have probably pushed later on. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's like you go to the club and then the person doing comedy is doing that as well at the same time. Yeah. You're both living two separate timelines. 
in the same room. Yes. But a theater genuinely is like, I am here to listen to you. And so I feel like you would, it would be received better. Yeah. It's funny. Like the, when I did Colbert the other night, he, his producer was telling me that this thing that he says to people sometimes on his staff, he goes, we have to remember that when we're putting on the show, we're performing with the audience, not for the audience. And I think that in a theater, the potential for performing with the audience is higher than in a comedy club because, you know, they're eating, they're drinking, they're doing all this stuff. And it's like, well, actually, you're not doing that. So you're actually, you're not all doing the same thing. Right. And how long did you do that tour with them? I did like five or six cities. And then in the New York one, there was some executives at Comedy Central who saw me and and they said, hey, would you want to do like your own tour of colleges? Because I was like a kid. I was like 25, 26 years old. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, that would be great. So I did the first ever Comedy Central live college tour. It was called the Medium Man on Campus tour, actually. The Medium Man on Campus. And John Mulaney was my opener, actually. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what he's up to, but he's... uh, No, I'm just just kidding. He's the biggest comedy star in the world. He came on that tour, and we went on, like, a tour bus, and it was a very kind of formative life experience, I think, for both of us. And we're still very close. He came to the Old Man in the Pool the other night, which was really sweet. Does that make you nervous when your friends come and watch, like, performances? Yeah. Yeah, I don't like performing for friends that much. I mean, really? I like performing for strangers. I I think of like performing comedy as like stripping or something where it's like <laughs> I'd I like do to do it for other people. Yeah, I could strip. I mean, true truly, you know, <laughs> if you sent me to Peoria, Illinois and said you're you're going to strip and there's going to be no cameras and it's going to be all strangers, I'd go, "Yeah, I'll do that." Yeah. <laughs> For the record, the way that Mike feels about stripping in front of his family is the way I would feel about performing live comedy for literally anyone. Family, strangers, my producers listening to me talk right now. It's terrifying. Coincidentally, that's also how I would feel if I had to strip. So, that's interesting. But but then your grandma shows up to support you. And you're like, never. Elise, this is where it gets really tricky. That's why, and that's why I don't, that's why I'm not a stripper. That is the perfect way to describe what it's like, especially to write content about your own life, because you do so much content about you. I've had to start like sending my dad texts. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Hey, dad, I'm going to post a story this morning and I just need you to not watch it. (laughs) And he'll be like, great. (laughs) And it's, it's like, it gets exhausting because you're like, I don't even want to write this stuff that I have to then tell people I love to not listen to it. It's not that it's like, it's not that it's so inappropriate that I'm embarrassed for anyone to hear. It's like, I just don't want people that have known me as a child to hear it. It's like, that's it. But yeah, no, usually I'll change the names, um, especially if I don't have any relationship with that person now. And like, I don't care to reach out and be like, how do you feel about me talking about you? (laughs) Exactly. Right. Uh, well, do you find it's hard that, like, where where do you draw the line between what information is yours to share and not? It's definitely a fine line. I mean, I use a ton of fake names. Like, I yeah. I pretty much have other than <laughs> my wife, my daughter, my yeah. parents, my brother, like the people, uh, you know, those folks uh, who whose names you can't fake. Um, I'd say everyone's name is is changed, and uh, 
Yeah, and and then like with those people, you know, my my wife Jenny is a poet, and so she's contributed a lot of like lines and things over the years to help uh, color and paint in uh, you know her character, mm-hmm. and that's been a really special part of my uh, process. And and also my brother Joe has been he writes with me, and so he's written a lot of lines for himself. I actually think it's much better. If the people in your life who are these characters can remind you of their version of the story. Yes. I say that in my special Thank God for Jokes about, you know, I I, I tell a story and I go, but that's just my side of the story. Maybe this person's version was blah, 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 blah. A lot of times I'll say to my wife, like, hey, Jen, like, here's how I remember this thing. And she goes, like, that's not really what happened at all. Like, actually... (laughs) Uh, we, you know, we You're like, how do I meld these two? <laughs> yeah. And so usually, honestly, it does end up being an amalgam of some kind. And in and, and the same with my brother, my parents, I don't really run stuff by them. They don't even really want me to be a comedian. You know what I mean? Like they don't watch like, my comedy. I don't trust your side of the story anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's Their fine. side of the story is a whole other thing. <laughs> but also there are certain things that just because it's not the way it happened doesn't mean it's not the way you experienced it or internalized it. So there are yeah, like different sides and you can just try and like be like, you know what? No, this is how I remembered it. And this is what my brain is experiencing as it happened. So David Sedaris is like one of my favorite humorists of all time. And one time some, I saw someone ask him like, are these stories true? And he goes, true enough for you. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, it's kind of like a, 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 a snappy take on yeah. uh, the whole thing. Because it's true. It's like it actually doesn't matter for sure. you whether my story that I'm telling you is true. Sure. Unless there's something at stake like a major multinational corporation. Right. Like you're not, you don't go and like outwardly lie and hurt somebody. That's like not – that's not the goal. Absolutely yeah. not. I, I think that I am just very literal, and so I really struggle. I just don't think I'll ever be the person that is like, I'm just going to make something up because I don't have anything. And I really had to become okay with the idea of like, there are just going to be things I misremember, and I have to be okay with that, you know? Well, it goes back to our flesh, <laughs> our flesh, uh, what was Yeah, that? flesh suits. <laughs> it goes back to our flesh suits, which is uh, that we are also a bunch of mushy brains, Yes. Did you know, side note, very not important, but did you know that if you were to hold your brain in your hands, it would be so fragile that it would collapse in itself? It can't oh support gosh. itself. It's all supported oh, by the really? fluid around it. Yeah. No. I also could be wrong right now as right. I'm saying it. Right. No, I'm not. I don't think you're a scientist. <laughs> so I had my team fact check this for me because I just immediately questioned the words coming out of my mouth as soon as they left my mouth. And I can confirm this is correct. If you tried to hold your brain in your hands, it would collapse under its own weight. So it's protected by all of the like fluid around it. So wear a helmet. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. So I'm not going to run with this. I heard this as a, I, uh, somebody was explaining this as to why you need to wear helmets. Holy cow. So that has nothing to do with anything. And with that, yay, we did it. We did it. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciated talking to you. And thanks for just sharing so much. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah. We are going to skip right over the fact that the last thing I said to Mike Birbiglia was that our brains would smush themselves if we held them in our hands. That's not how I want to remember that conversation ending. So I'm just going to block it out. Perfect.
But with that being said, the ability to connect with Mike about storytelling and like how he crafts a story and what he adds in and what he leaves out and how he highlights humor and truth all at the same time. And it's funny and meaningful. Like the way he tells stories is so inspiring. And I want to tell stories like Mike does. I, I just can't get over the hurdle that he loves performing live. I could not relate to that any less. I want to, though. I really do want to be able to perform live one day. It's just a mental hurdle that, like, I don't understand how to move past, um, but maybe with practice. You know, he talks about failing and how it's all a part of success, and um, I do want to take that to heart. But for now, I don't think I have the emotional capacity to fail in public. So shout out to live performers everywhere, because you guys are brave. All right, that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Mike Berbiglia. If you like our show, please rate and review us. It just helps other people find the show. Okay, see you next time. Bye. There's more funny because it's true with Lemonada Premium. You'll get access to all of Lemonada's premium content, including my five questions with Atsuko Okatsuka, which is out now. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts. Funny Cause It's True is a Lemonada Media and Powder Keg production. The show is produced by Claire Jones, Zoe Dennis, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Linnea Tony. Our associate producer is Tiffany Bowie. Rachel Neal is our senior director of new content, and our VP of weekly production is Steve Nelson. Executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Paul Feig, Laura Fisher, Kessla Childers, and me, Elise Myers. This show is mixed by Johnny Vince Evans, additional help from Noah Smith and Ivan Kryev. Our theme song music was written by me and scored by Xander Singh. Follow Funny Cause It's True wherever you get your podcasts or listen ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast, Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way, through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.